Our scripture reading this evening will be taken from Colossians 3, uh, verse 1 through 11. After we read from that, a selection of scripture which is found on page 1,354 in your pew Bible. We'll also be reading uh, from uh, Lord's Day 18 within our Heidelberg Catechism. And in the Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 218. I debated whether or not to read one of the historical accounts, for example, as found in the opening chapters of Acts, but in due time, Lord willing, we'll come to Ascension Day, and it's my intention then uh, to look at the historical narrative of the Ascension. And so I chose this evening to read a passage of Scripture that affirms the reality of the Ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then also identifies the spiritual principle that if indeed we believe that Christ is risen and ascended into heaven, we ought to seek those things which are above. Uh, so we read this evening from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And thus far for this evening, our reading from the Word of God, we then turn to Lord's Day 18. And you'll notice if you look at the difference between Lord's Day 18 and Lord's Day 17, Lord's Day 18 is much more detailed, uh, a greater number of questions and answers. This is in large part because in the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was very little debate concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even between the Reformed and the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic. But this was not the case when it came to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This area of doctrine was uh, hotly uh, contentious between the Reformed uh, and the Lutheran especially. And that's why there's greater detail in the Heidelberg Catechism and also uh, more questions and answers. So we read first question 46. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? And the answer that Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and there remains on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Question 47 asks, but isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? And the answer, Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. Question 48, if his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? And the answer, certainly not. 
Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. And then if you turn the page, you'll notice uh, one more question. Question 49, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? And the answer, first, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not sure if it's a familiar saying uh, among you. I know growing up I heard it quite often. Uh, My father especially, but others would also say, it's not always what you know, sometimes it's who you know. And there's been a couple of events within uh, life recently that I've been reminded of the truth of that. Sometimes knowing someone can be a great advantage. It can give you a point of contact, uh, perhaps. It can give you a referral. It can give you uh, a good word of testimony. Uh, It might be that you have someone that you can call uh, to gain some wisdom uh, or at least their opinion. So oftentimes, practically speaking, uh, even in our everyday life, it's good to have people, so to speak, in the right places. I want to take the truth that is expressed in that statement and then elevate it an infinite amount and remind you as a Christian congregation and remind every Christian who may hear these words that you have a friend. Not in some light, trite understanding of the word friend, but in the deepest, most powerful significance, you have a friend in heaven. And of course, that friend is Jesus Christ, but not only a friend in heaven, but also a friend that is ever-present, everywhere. And these are the truths that are bound up in the historical reality of the step of exaltation of Jesus Christ, which we often call the ascension. And so we look this evening as we follow our catechism's summary of scriptural truth to this theme, redemption through the ascension of Jesus Christ. Noticing, first of all, the understanding of the ascension, and then secondly, the clarification of the ascension, and then thirdly, the advantage of the ascension. And I I want to put a qualifier out that we need to be somewhat theologically precise this evening especially uh, in the first two points. Now, all of our sermons, uh, hopefully, are theological, uh, but when we come to the ascension of Jesus Christ, there is a need for precise theology. And I will do my utmost by the Spirit's enabling help to make these matters as clear and as simple uh, as possible, Uh, and then we'll move in in our third point to showing the profit or the benefit Uh, from the right understanding of the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
So first of all this evening, then, the understanding of the ascension. Faith includes a certain understanding. It's not only knowledge, but it is knowledge. A theological knowledge, a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, and a knowledge also of what Jesus Christ has done. And so some of the details in the understanding, there are three things that I want to try to explain concerning the ascension of Jesus Christ. And boys and girls, you can think of the word ascension as just being going up. Going up. So Jesus Christ, in His human nature, went up from earth into the heaven of heavens, that infinite expanse where God dwells in all of His glory and majesty and honor. And we believe on the basis of Scripture that this was what we call a historical ascension. It was an actual event that took place on a certain particular day. And the Christian faith is not based upon myths or legends or fables, but the Christian faith, and we can never compromise on this point, although liberal theology has often encouraged us to compromise, the Christian faith is based upon historical events that take place in time. And every single one of the steps of Christ's humiliation and every single one of the steps of Christ's exaltation takes place within history. So there was an actual moment, a historical moment, for example, in which Christ was conceived. And there was a historical moment in which He was born. There was a historical moment in which His sufferings culminated in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was a historical moment when He was crucified, when He was buried. And then, of course, there was that historical moment in which He broke forth victoriously from the grave. And then there was also that historical moment in which Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And there will be the historical moment when He returns again to judge the living and the dead. And so the first thing we would stress about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ was that it was an actual event that took place in actual time. The second thing we would say about the details is what we call, it is a local ascension. And again, we emphasize the movement of Christ according to His human nature from one locality, one place, to another place. And Acts 1, and you can read this tonight at your own leisure, records the account of Jesus Christ leading His disciples outside of Jerusalem uh, to the Mount of Olives. And there His human nature moved by way of the divine power that He possesses actually moved from that place on earth. And not just up into the atmosphere. Boys and girls, if you look out in the sky, you'll see sometimes clouds. Maybe at night you see the stars. Jesus Christ, in His human nature, did not just go there, not to the moon, not to Mars, not to just the solar system, but went into the heaven of heavens. And here language fails us to describe what exactly this is, but this is the abode of the majesty of eternal God. The Apostle Paul, as we said recently, was caught up to the third heaven 
by way of a vision, and he saw things for which he could not even speak. This was the locality to which Jesus Christ in his human nature returned. The third detail that we would emphasize is that the ascension of Jesus Christ was not only historical and local, but it was one that was glorifying. As Jesus Christ ascended, he took the position of the exercise of his absolute authority as mediator. And you can think, for example, uh, of what he says uh, in Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. But we might ask, well, but Jesus Christ is fully God, eternally God. And so according to his divine nature, he always possessed absolute authority. But that text in Matthew 28 is referring to his person as the mediator, having accomplished the work which he set out to do. He now enters back into the immediate presence of God with his human nature to be seated at that position of absolute power, the right hand of the Father. And this also must be understood with figurative language. The Father, along, of course, with the divine nature of the Son and the Holy Spirit, is spirit. So God in his divine nature does not have a body, and so God in his divine nature does not have a right arm. Uh, These are anthropomorphisms in which a human form is ascribed to God by way of condescending to us that we might be given some truth. The right hand often refers to someone who is a vice regent, someone who receives by way of delegation all of the authority. And that's the position of Jesus Christ. And that's why we read from Psalm 24, verse 9 and 10, Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory. And so you might almost say that there's a paradox. We began the morning by emphasizing, along with the sovereignty, but the humility of Jesus Christ. He rode into Jerusalem upon a donkey, but he ascended into heaven to assume the position of premier exaltation. And figuratively speaking, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, from which he possesses and also exercises all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, here again, we must at least consider the question, how do we know these things? How do we know these things to be true? And the answer has, you might say, two aspects to it. The basis for this understanding is the clear revelation of Scripture. The clear revelation of the Word of God. And for all of us, and again I say tonight, especially for those of you who are young, those of you who perhaps will go off to institutions of higher education, Don't ever forget and don't ever compromise and don't ever deny the basis for the Christian faith is found in the infallible Word of God. Let the scholars scoff. Let the wise of the age laugh. 
you hold fast to what is revealed in the Word of God, that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And hold on to that Word of God by the simple exercise of childlike faith. We profess this faith. Nearly every single Sunday evening, we say, I believe with knowledge and with conviction and with confidence based upon what God has revealed in His Word, I believe, among other things, I believe that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And let nothing shake that faith. Hold on to the truths of the Word of God. And yet in our second point, we need to add uh, a bit of clarification. And here also, uh, I will seek to do what I can to be clear uh, with deep mysteries of theology. A clarification, first of all, concerning the natures of Jesus Christ, and then a clarification concerning the presence of Jesus Christ. Based again on the Word of God, we understand that Jesus Christ is one person. And so all throughout the inspired Scriptures, personal pronouns are used of Jesus Christ. He says, I go to my Father. He doesn't say in some weird type of language, we, referring to his two natures, but he uses the singular, I go to my Father. So we know on the basis of that divine self-revelation, Jesus Christ is one person, one individual subsistence. But in that one person, there are two natures. There is, of course, the eternal divine nature, which Jesus Christ has always possessed. But then at the moment of the conception, in addition, we might say, to his divine nature, he also took to himself a very real human nature. So from the moment of the conception on, the one person of Jesus Christ is in possession of two natures that are not mixed or blended together. Now, boys and girls, maybe you sometimes, you know, watch your mom make, make a cake or, or, or bake brownies, and they put the brownie mix in there, and this is about the extent of my baking skills, and then uh, they put eggs in there and maybe some oil, and then they, they blend it all together. And if you were to look at that brownie mix after it's all blended together, you wouldn't be able to tell me exactly where the egg is and where uh, the, the, the mix is and the oil, because they're all blended together. That's not what happened with the two natures of Jesus Christ. The divine remains divine. The human remains human. They are not confused. They are not blended. They are not mixed together, but they are inseparably united together. But the divine, because it is divine, is infinitely beyond the human. And this is important for our understanding and when we speak about the ascension of Jesus Christ, we are referring, yes, to his person, but in regards to his human nature. His divine nature, if we may say it this way, his divine nature did not move at all on that day. Because his divine nature has always been and will always be omnipresent, present everywhere in all of its fullness. Even though in some places... We think here in the heaven of heavens, the divine nature shows forth in more of its brilliance, uh, but Jesus Christ, along with the Father and the Spirit and their divine nature, are fully present everywhere. So the divine nature of Jesus Christ does not move 
during the ascension. His human nature, which also can rightly be said in relationship to his person, so you can say that Jesus Christ in his human nature ascended into heaven, just as well as you can say Jesus Christ in his divine nature remained omnipresent. And this is the mystery of what we call the unipersonality of Jesus Christ. One person, but two natures. So that Jesus Christ, think of it, he can say that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet he can also say during his earthly ministry that he has nowhere to lay his head. And so when we speak about the ascension of Jesus Christ, we refer especially to his human nature. Now, contrary to what the Lutheran theologian said, the human nature does not become divine. The human nature at the ascension does not receive all of the properties of divinity. But rather, the divine remains divine, the human remains human. And that then is a basis for a clarification of the presence. And here I want to try to begin to move us to points of practical application, because as Christians, we have the best of both worlds, if I can say it that way. We have Christ with us, but we also have Christ before us or in front of us. Because the clarification of the presence, we have the divine nature of Christ always with us. The divine nature, especially in regards to His divinity, his majesty, his grace, and his spirit. And that divine nature is never absent from us for a moment. And so Matthew 28 also includes that wonderfully comforting promise. Lo, Jesus Christ says, I am with you always. He says that to the disciples, but he says that to the church. And so by extension, he says that to To you, Christian, Jesus Christ says, I am always present with you. But now think in the minds of the disciples, Jesus Christ says that, but then he leaves. He ascends. So when he says, lo, I am with you always, it refers especially to his divine nature, his divinity, his majesty, his grace, and his spirit. And this ought to give us as Christians, an unspeakable basis for true comfort, for true confidence. And not only to the boys and to the girls, but also to the young people. You know, perhaps sometimes you, you have to go somewhere, and, and you go, i got to go there alone. Maybe it's a job interview. Maybe it's uh, an application process. And you go, oh, boy, I'm kind of nervous. have to go there. I can remember times in my life where I was terrified to go somewhere because I had to go there all alone. And no one could go with you. But Jesus Christ says, lo, I am with you always. And I want to make a practical point of application, especially to teenagers, because we hear statistics that loneliness is on the rise, a sense of loneliness among young people. And I, for one, am saddened by that report. And so if these words find the ears of a lonely teenager, what a friend you have in Jesus. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Perhaps there's drama. 
Perhaps there's social unrest. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He is always present. And He will never abandon you. He will never leave you. And of course, that truth isn't only for the young people, because statistics also tell us that loneliness and an increasing sense of loneliness is a pandemic for all age demographics. And you can think of some of the difficult circumstances that we encounter in life, even when death calls our spouse, and suddenly a person is confronted with an overwhelming sense of loneliness. Jesus Christ is ever-present in His divine nature, with His majesty, with His glory, and with His Spirit. And yet His human nature is in heaven. His human nature isn't right next to us as we walk through the various seasons of life. His human nature is in heaven. But the human nature is in heaven on behalf of the Christian. And that brings us into what we want to consider in our third point, the advantage of the ascension. There is an advantage, of course, to the reality of His divine nature being ever-present with us, but now we look especially at the advantage of having His human nature, having completed the work of redemption. The human nature is in the presence of the Father as our heavenly advocate. Now, advocate perhaps is a word that is somewhat foreign to us. Uh, You can think of a defense attorney. You can think of someone who pleads on someone else's behalf. But I want to make sure that we don't fall into a misunderstanding. Uh, we, We should not have this sense that Jesus Christ is begging His Father to look upon us with with pity and mercy. Jesus Christ doesn't beg. But Jesus Christ is the advocate for the Christian in this sense that He presents the reality of the completed work of salvation. And not only that, He makes intercession for us. I think of the first aspect of that in light of 1 John 2, verse 1. There John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And and that last phrase, the righteous, that's, that's the work that Jesus Christ presents. And so if... If doubts arise in our minds, well, what of this sin that I've committed? Or or, or what of that sin that I struggle with? Not that we excuse ourselves, not that we become complacent in our Christian life, but when those seasons or those times of questions and doubts come, our answer is, but our Savior is in the presence of the Father, and He is the righteous one. And He presents on our behalf before the judge of the heaven and of the earth His finished work. And uh, a few days ago, or maybe it was a few weeks ago, I was talking with my wife about quotations that I use as illustrations 
Uh, and we both agreed, I think, that I haven't used this one in quite some time. It comes from Martin Luther. And he wrote that when Satan comes and asks you about your righteousness, tell Satan, well, you must go to heaven because my righteousness is there at the right hand of the Father. Dear Christian, do you ever doubt because of remaining indwelling sin? Is your assurance ever shaken? Do you ever have lingering thoughts in the back of your soul? How will it be with me when I stand before Almighty God? Well, you tell those doubts and those fears, go to heaven and look at the right hand of the Father because my righteousness is not found here. It's not found in what my hands have done. It's found, if we may say it this way, in what the hands of Christ have done. And Christ is there presenting the evidence, so to speak, that it is finished. And He does that continually. He ever lives to make intercession. Do you ever struggle with your prayers? Words come out backwards, upside down. Maybe even you groan inwardly and say, I don't even know what to pray for. Here again, I want to pastorally remind you, don't be discouraged. Sure, you and I don't know how to pray as we ought, but we have a high priest who makes perfect prayers and who takes our imperfect prayers and presents them with his merit to the Father. So there is this wonderful advantage of having a heavenly advocate. There's also the advantage of a heavenly guarantee. A guarantee with the ascension, the Christian has the human nature in heaven. The same human nature that I possess is in heaven. And, and because of the union between Christ and the Christian, where he is, I must also eventually be. This is what we find expressed in John 14, verse 3. Jesus tells his disciples, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you so that where I am, there you may be also. And sometimes if you read the history of the, those of our Dutch ancestors who immigrated uh, to what was then known as the New World. Sometimes, uh, you know, you'd find a, a young groom and a young bride, and the young groom would immigrate to the New World first, and he would hopefully get some things established. And then you read perhaps love letters going back and forth across the Atlantic, and in due time, he would send for the bride. Because his desire was that she would be there with him. And so you can think, if that works as an illustration, uh, that's what the ascension of Jesus Christ is. Christ in His human nature has gone into the heaven of heavens. 
not just to spend some time in passivity, but to prepare a place for His bride, for His people. And when everything is prepared according to His decrees, by His power, He will then send for the bride. But even better yet, He will come and receive the bride. And so the next great step of redemption is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ought to give us a certain holy anticipation as we go through our life. Our eyes, spiritually speaking, ought to be scanning the horizons, looking for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And is this not what ties in with the parable of the ten virgins? Five were ready with a holy anticipation and five were not. And so, given the fact that Jesus Christ, according to His human nature, is in heaven, I would encourage you, fix your eyes upon the heavens. Not to the point that you become of no earthly good. That was also another saying that we often heard growing up. This person or that person is so spiritually minded they were no earthly good. No, we are to be about earthly good. But there's more to life than what meets our physical eye. And so we walk by faith, hoping that soon our faith will become sight. The third advantage of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we have received the heavenly Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You can think of John 16, verse 7 here. Jesus again tells His disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send Him to you. And so you well know that after the moment of Jesus Christ's ascension, in the fullness of time also then, there was the day of Pentecost. When the fullness of the Holy Spirit was poured out, especially to take up residence within the heart of the Christian, producing that faith, giving that comfort, instilling that peace. And what a blessing the Spirit is, although His person and His work is so mysterious. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit through the testimony of the Word of God that we are the children of God. And so Jesus Christ in His human nature did not abandon us. He ascended for our profit, for our benefit, so that He might be in the presence of the Father interceding on our behalf, and that His human nature might be a first fruit, so to speak, of our human nature's being in the experience of eternal life, and so that He might send His Holy Spirit within our hearts. And so we can say, rightly understood, there is great, great blessings having a friend in Jesus. But I want to close tonight by pointing out the contrast. We've described something of these wonderful benefits, but they only apply to a particular group of people. And that particular group of people are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with the personal exercise of sincere and genuine faith. Those who hold on to Jesus Christ. There's a dangerous distance, it has often been said, of approximately 18 inches between one's head and one's heart. 
Now, yes, certainly there needs to be clear theological knowledge, but there has to be more than just intellectual theory. There has to be true faith to properly benefit from the reality of an ascended Jesus Christ. I'm struck again and again and again as I read the Scriptures of how often the Scriptures identify these two classes of human persons. We saw it to some extent this morning. There were the multitudes that when they said, who is this, said, this is Jesus of Nazareth. But then there would also be the multitudes that cried, away with him, crucify him. And you see also in our text, there is the two classes. Uh, There are those who have their minds fixed on that which is above, but then there are also those who walk through this life with their conduct characterized by all forms of habitual sin. In which class do you find yourself this evening? Do you believe in an ascended Jesus Christ? If you don't, why not? Why not? You don't believe that he's able to ascend? You don't believe in the supernatural? Well, then I encourage you to lay down your arrogant pride and humility, believe the Word of God. Do you perhaps think that somehow your good works will outweigh your bad works? I can assure you no one has ever successfully stood before the bar of God's justice and had their good works outweigh their bad works. I hope that's not your plan for eternity. Uh, Maybe you think of this Christianity stuff is fine for grandpa and grandma, mom and dad, but I'm young, I'm advanced, I see things uh, with all of the benefits of a postmodern culture. Then I humbly come and I say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No mere human wisdom will ever save anyone. No cultural trends will ever alleviate the impact of sin. There's only one solution, and that is the Savior. That is personally saying, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the eternal Son of God. I believe that you are the one who was crucified who rose from the dead and who now ascends into heaven? The answer is to say, in many ways, like the repentant thief, remember me. Remember me, Lord, when you intercede before the Father. Remember me when you present the finished work of righteousness. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then there is this glorious promise Jesus Christ will remember every single person who calls out to him in a sincere exercise of faith. He will never forget. 
He has the name of you, dear Christian, written, so to speak, on the palm of his hand. He cannot forget you, and he will not forget you, because he ever lives to make intercession. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence with joy and gladness within our heart, but also with a sense of a profound reverence for the deep mysteries that we have attempted to peer into. Uh, Lord, the more we come to know about the person of Jesus Christ and his two natures, the more we realize how great thou art. And so we ask for in all of our theology that we might have humility. Uh, but we do pray, too, that you would give us a strong confidence, uh, not based on anything within ourselves, but based upon who we know especially your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear our prayer to that end then, because we ask it in his name. Amen.